Al Anderson Afternoons, the podcast. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Coming up, I'll talk to Alan Cross, the host of the ongoing history of new music about Michael Jackson and R. Kelly. U of M political scientist Paul Thomas reacts to more testimony in the SNC-Lavalin affair on Parliament Hill today. And Chris Broughton, chair of the Board of Trustees at the Winnipeg School Division. He has written an open letter to the Premier. All that on the way here. Please rate the podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast. Podcast and now the podcast. There's no thoughts of this is wrong or anything like that. He told me if they ever found out what we were doing, he and I would go to jail for the rest of our lives. Secrets will eat you up. You feel so alone. I want to be able to speak the truth as loud as I had to speak the lie for so long. That is a bit of the trailer for the new HBO documentary, Leaving Neverland. Joining us on the phone now, Stonewall Manitoba's Alan Cross to talk more about it. Hi, Alan. Hi. Did you you watch it? I have not seen it. I've seen some clips. Uh, I have not watched the whole thing. Have you? Yes, I, I have, uh, and it is a difficult watch, especially part one, where you have the two men in question recounting what they did with Michael Jackson and what he did to them. Uh, part two is more about what it was like to survive all that and growing up as an adult with this in your background. But part one, wow, that's, that's, a, that's a tough one to watch. I've heard that from other people as well. And these two in the documentary were the ones that testified it in favor, in support of Michael Jackson all those years ago when he was acquitted of this. Yes, and the documentary explains why. They were, for lack of a better term, brainwashed when Michael Jackson uh, had influence over them. And remember, one guy started his relationship with Michael Jackson when he was seven. And Jackson would go, uh, would hammer into his head, uh, you can't tell anybody about this. If you tell anybody about this, we're both going to jail. Our lives will be ruined. You can't tell anybody about this. You can't tell anybody about this. And uh, they, they maintained that facade all the way through until they were adults. And one of them had a child and started thinking, well, wait a second. This child I have is starting to, you know, I can't imagine somebody doing something to this person that Michael Jackson did to me. So there was all kinds of PTSD sort of flashbacks and, well, not flashbacks, but but regrets and, and, and anger about what they were subjected to as children. They didn't know any better at the time. And again, they were still young men when they were called to testify. And that testimony uh, was hammered into their head over over years by the most famous singer in the world. I want to talk about reaction now to this documentary, Alan. I see a few Canadian radio stations have pulled Michael Jackson's music. Is that a proper reaction in your opinion, or where do you come down on that? I I think it is. I mean, we've known that Michael Jackson was a a weird guy for a very long time. I mean, we called him Wacko Jacko. We knew about the elephant man bones. We knew about the relationship with Liz Taylor. We knew about uh, dangling a baby over a balcony. We hit chimps, the, or bubbles, the chimp, and, and so on. 
Um, and we had heard these these very disturbing stories about his relationships with children that go back, you know, 25 years. Uh, now, in uh, the highly sensitized Me Too era, uh, people, I think, are more willing to believe the victims and not give celebrities a pass for bad behavior. I mean, we saw it with Ryan Adams recently. We've seen it with R. Kelly. We've seen it with any number of, of, of people that all stem from the Harvey Weinstein allegations that exploded this whole movement. And now I think that people are saying enough is enough. How can I listen to man in the mirror or pretty young thing or uh, any of Michael Jackson's big hits without thinking about what he did to at least two young men and perhaps many, many more. And do you think it's easier for us now maybe to have that reaction, not want to play or listen to his music anymore because he's now dead? Is it easier because he's gone? It might be. Uh, I think uh, radio stations are going to have to make some decisions as to what they're going to do with his music. Uh, some stations in Quebec have already pulled it. There was a uh, pulled all his songs. There was a uh, DJ in Hollywood who... Uh, uh, said, talked to Variety magazine earlier today and said that she will no longer play Michael Jackson songs and she's urging other DJs like her to do exactly the same. And I would imagine there are conversations happening in music offices all across uh, North America right now. What do we do about this? Do we quietly drop these songs because of the stigma that's now attached to them? Or do we make a, drop these songs and make a statement saying we're no longer going to play these songs because of the stigma attached to them? Or are we just going to let this ride as we have been for the last 25 years because Michael Jackson is such a, a big star and we just have to separate the artist from the music? Um, it's, there's going to be some very interesting conversations taking place over the next uh, month or so. I uh, did a quick search and I found out that last week, before this documentary aired, Michael Jackson's songs were played on North American radio 15,744 times. Let's fast forward to this coming Monday and look at that total uh, for the current week. And let's see if anybody is making uh, any decisions. And then let's do that a week from then to see if there's some kind of trend happening. We won't know until we actually look at these numbers, and we can look at them with uh, some of the radio software that we have. Yeah, that may just start quietly happening, right? Without big announcements from radio stations or streaming services, they may just stop playing Michael Jackson music, which I think most people would agree is probably the least we can do. I think so. My, You know, we've, we've run into issues like this before. Uh, my wife, for example, won't watch another Woody Allen film, although she was a big Woody Allen fan. Right. She's having a very hard time you know, watching anything with Kevin Spacey in it for exactly the same reason. And but but what we've reached here is we're dealing with child abuse. We're dealing with sexual child abuse, and that is the perhaps the one crime for which there is no redemption. You cannot give an excuse for it. You can't be. Uh, you can't reconcile yourself to that. You 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 were a monster with these children. Um, let's take the example of Gary Glitter, huge huge pop star in the glam rock era of the of, of in Britain in the early 1970s. And right. his song, Rock and Roll Part Two was uh, a staple at sporting events all around the world. But then he was charged and convicted with all kinds of child molestation, child pornography, child everything, charges in, um, in Southeast Asia and spent some time in jail. 
When was the last time you heard Rock and Roll Part Two anywhere? Yeah. yeah. You know, that has been dropped. There was uh, another band uh, out of the UK called Lost Prophets who had a lead singer named Ian Watkins. They were a rather popular rock band. But then we found out that Ian Watkins did some really terrible, awful things to the child of an acquaintance. And now he's in jail for at least 30 years, maybe longer. Uh, do you think anybody's going to listen to any Lost Prophet songs from, from here on in? No, you can't, because the singer is a convicted child molester. Uh, so I, I don't know how you can delineate between those two cases and the Michael Jackson one. It's, it's essentially the same thing, regardless of what the Michael Jackson truthers say. There are these people who were completely in denial that he did anything bad. Uh, meanwhile, his family is trying to defend a $2 billion corporation, which is the Michael Jackson legacy. And if they're, they're absolutely scared to death that these allegations will finally burst the bubble and they won't be able to make any money off Jackson's legacy anymore. We're talking to Alan Cross, host of the ongoing history of new music. You can find his website at alancross.ca. That's Alan with one L. Alan, let me shift gears here to R. Kelly. Quit playing. I didn't do this stuff. This is not me. I'm fighting for my life. That is R. Kelly losing it on CBS TV with Gail King. Um, This is a bit different, but again, uh, streaming services and radio stations are not playing his music, Alan. Yeah, uh, for a lot of the same reasons that we have been talking about with people like Michael Jackson and Ryan Adams and any number of people caught up on the U2 movement uh, and any number of people caught up in the Me Too movement. It's, uh, these are also allegations that go back, oh, at least 20 years. And now, after the surviving R. Kelly TV show, uh, people are coming forward and saying that this guy is, is a monster. He, he held women against their will. A lot of these people were underaged. Uh, he had a, a cult-like grip on them. And, and he um, has been running into money trouble um, because he's been fighting all this stuff. And nobody will play his, his records anymore. So he is being um, punished tremendously in the wake of that surviving Kelly documentary and the fact that in this Me Too era, we are now very sensitive to anyone who abuses power in the way people like R. Kelly are alleged to have done. Well, and Alan, he's got other troubles too. R. Kelly had until this morning to pay 160 grand in child support. He did not make that deadline. I'll end with this, Alan, and I'll get your final thoughts. I've got a new term, death by documentary. Boy, this might be the way to bring down these bad guys. You do a documentary, and it's the end of them. You know, this is a new thing. We, I can't remember. Although it must have happened before, but you're right. Uh, if you have a documentary that puts all the evidence in one place, and it appears on TV, well, then it must be true. And you'll have a lot more people jumping on the, on the bandwagon, or at least reevaluating their position regarding the person that's subject of the documentary or the miniseries. Alan, I appreciate your help with this. Thank you. You're very welcome. Alan Cross, host of the ongoing History of New Music. You can hear that on our brother station, CJOB, uh, Power 97, sorry, Power 97 has that. And his website, alancross.ca. That's Alan with one L, alancross.ca. From Stonewall, Manitoba.
Alan Cross. Always great chatting with him. We're going to talk to Paul Thomas, political scientist, a friend of ours here in just a moment. Let me get you up to speed on what's happening on Parliament Hill with the Justice Committee. Privy Council Clerk Michael Wernick testifying again for the second time. By the way, he says that people have been using social media to try and intimidate him as a witness in the SNC-Lavalin affair. As you heard in the news, Tristan mentioned that the Conservatives and New Democrats on the Commons Justice Committee are outraged because the Liberal members are refusing to recall Jody Wilson-Raybould. And this morning, Jerry Butts testified. Let me uh, share with you some of what he had to say this morning to the Justice Committee. I would like to acknowledge that we are on the ancestral lands of the Algonquin people. I am not here to quarrel with the former Attorney General or to say a single negative word about her personally. What I am here to do is to give evidence that what happened last fall is in fact very different from the version of events you heard last week. That's for sure. Uh, Butts was asked if he... uh was asked specifically about pressuring Jody Wilson-Raybould, which she says uh, happened and happened often. It was intense pressure, and almost a dozen people were involved in that pressure, including Butts. Take a listen. Was there a coordinated effort within the PMO to try to get the former AG to change her mind on the SNC file? No. And you can... 100%. How do we... 100% no? How, How can we believe that statement? Well... One would expect that if uh, such an effort existed, then I would have been aware of it, and I was not. And I know the people involved very well. All right, and joining us on the phone from the University of Manitoba, Paul Thomas, a political scientist there. Good afternoon, Paul. Afternoon, Hal. Thank you for doing this. Uh, You must be tired. Are you tired of talking about this? Because I am a bit, but it's important stuff. Are you tired yet, or do you live for this? Uh... I think I have a, a more well-rounded life than that, Hal. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it is it is political drama being played out in the open in a way that's unusual to, for us ordinary folks to get a glimpse of. What goes on at the center of government is the most secretive part of the governing process, usually. So we usually don't get this glimpse into the frenzied world of uh, of, of government, and uh, you realize that. Uh, uh, people can come away from such encounters uh, with different perceptions of what went on. So it was fascinating this morning and again this afternoon when we had two uh, senior public servants on the stand. Here's my big question. This is kind of why I wanted to have you on for a few minutes, and I hate taking up a lot of your time. You're, you're an important guy, but I really appreciate you making time for me. But here's my question. We heard Butts today say, Nothing to see here. Move along. Uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould didn't lie, but I certainly have a different version of events. Is it? Does this matter? Does this testimony today matter? Is it too little, too late? Uh, I'm talking the impact politically on the on the Trudeau uh, government. Yeah, I guess um, he said that nothing happened uh, beyond what's normal in government, and uh, since most of us are never at the center of government. Uh, he, uh, he knows more about what what the routine operations of a big enterprise like the government of Canada is like. Um, and he also said that uh, 
she didn't bring her concerns forward uh, in a serious way to him directly, although he admitted he was managing other files, like dealing with Donald Trump and the NAFTA negotiations, so he wasn't central to this file. She didn't bring it forward until after the shuffle. Uh, people will dispute the, that testimony, will say that uh, that's probably not a, a full description of what went on here. It is taking a toll, uh, undoubtedly, on the reputation of the prime minister in particular, on the standing of the government with voters. That's being registered in the polls. How long-lasting that impact will be, we don't know at this stage. Uh, and uh, it, it's going to. There's no way you can shut this down overnight. There's uh, there's already demands for more witnesses to be called because more names have been thrown into the mix. A list of characters that I'm losing track of. I can't remember all the names, but but it, it this will not go away anytime soon. Should we? Do you think, as the Conservatives and New Democrats feel, should we hear again from Jody Wilson-Raybould based based on what we heard from Butts and others today? Yeah, uh, you know, you you think well, that's fair. She, he got to rebut her testimony. Now she gets her turn. But then does he get another turn too? <laughs> yeah. How much? How many afternoons can we spend watching this new indoor sport in Ottawa? You know, there's curling on television. What if we wanted to watch the curling? So. <laughs> Um, you know, this is a tricky world, and you know, to to Canadians generally, uh, we didn't get any greater clarity from today's testimony, whether morning or afternoon, whether serious uh, legal lines were crossed or perhaps somewhat less serious ethical lines were crossed, and who crossed the lines and who's telling the truth, the whole truth, and the nothing but the truth, as they used to say on Dragnet. Uh, so it's it's messy, and uh, and one wonders whether uh, an abstract notion like the rule of law is something that is top of mind for most voters, and they'll keep it at the at the front of their mind by the time we roll around to an election in October, or will other events supersede these events, and will the, does the prime minister have time uh, to turn uh, to um, polish up his tarnished image uh, because he's undoubtedly it's taken uh, a hit. Yeah. Final question, Paul. Um, you touched on it earlier on uh, in our chat here. This really does remind me of American politics, the way they do things in the States, right? You know, dr- lots of drama, as you said. Might we see more of this kind of stuff now from Canadian politicians after this, because we've seen what kind of an impact it can have, right? Might we see more of this? And and is all this bright sunshine a good thing, or is it maybe? Uh, are there elements of, of it that are are bad? Lots of uh, political uh, developments and trends spill over from the United States into Canada. I hope the worst things about American politics, like an uh, an excessive reliance on private money and uh, and so on. But uh, American committees, but whether in the House of Representatives or the Senate, are very very powerful. And when you have divided government with one party controlling the presidency and another party controlling the Congress, both houses of the Congress, you get very very hard hitting. Uh, challenging uh, attacks on witnesses. What is interesting, I think, this afternoon is 
public servants normally do their best work in the dark. They're supposed to be anonymous and impartial. They don't have a public profile. Well, here they are on the stand being cross-examination with insinuations about their motivations and so on. That could do some damage to the professional reputation of the public service. And there will be calls after this for Mr. Wernick to resign, the, the clerk of the Privy Council, who's also titled the Secretary of the Cabinet and the Deputy Minister serving the Prime Minister. And if the government should change in October, I doubt that Mr. Wernick would be around to serve an incoming uh, Conservative Prime Minister or an NDP, for that matter. Paul, again, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Always a pleasure, Hal. Paul Thomas joining us, political scientist, University of Manitoba. I was telling you about the Winnipeg School Division and the fight with the province uh, this morning. A trustee was on with the start, Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, saying we can't do a 2% increase. It's got to be 2.9%. But if it's more than 2 well, then the province says their administration will face cuts. They will get it to 2% one way or another. After that appearance by the trustee on the start this morning, Chris Broughton, he is the chair of the Board of Trustees at the Winnipeg School Division, wrote an open letter to the Premier, and he joins us on the phone now to talk about it. Good afternoon, Chris. Hello, Hal. Hi, thanks a lot for doing this. I appreciate it. No problem. Why did you feel it was necessary to do an open letter to the Premier on this? Uh, The past few months, we've uh, made five requests of the Minister of Education, Calvin Gertson, to to meet and discuss uh, education at the Winnipeg School Division and across the province, so everything from student outcomes to uh, funding of education, and uh, the minister is yet to respond to any of our requests. The minister seems to be focused on responding through the media or on Twitter, and despite his assurances he'd like to meet with school divisions, I'm not entirely sure that he has, and definitely uh, ignoring the Winnipeg School Division. And then the other side of it, Chris, is people are saying, hey, here's the budget you've been given, work with it. So definitely, the, the minister has said that Manitobans want to see uh, fiscal restraint, and, and we're demonstrating that. Uh, we're cutting where, where we can, and we're uh, avoiding implementing uh, programs where it may not be necessary at this time. But we've consulted with our community. We've done extensive budget consult, consultations with the residents of Winnipeg School Division, and they uh, indicate that they're more than willing to pay uh, the 2.9% increase that, that we drafted to see the services that they want to see in their schools uh, being delivered. So there's a, a significant disconnect between what the minister is saying and what uh, the residents of the Winnipeg School Division are saying. Uh, and in, in addition, while the province has given us a budget, uh, the province is also raising our costs through changes that they've made in legislation. Uh, the province is also reducing our property tax revenue by giving uh, downtown corporations massive tax holidays. And then to top it all off, as the very first uh, measure of, of this budget, the province has increased property taxes by phasing out uh, the tax incentive grant. So, you know, the the province is the one 
doing most of the damage to the average resident's property tax bill when it comes to education costs. And that's before we get a chance to deliver on the services that students need to improve their outcomes. So, um, you know, we're working within our budget, um, but the province is hamstringing us. And then at the 11th hour, uh, delivering new rules that we haven't been able to consult with the community on. We've requested the minister, we haven't heard back from the minister's office yet, uh, for comment on all of this because it's becoming a big story. But I suspect he would say to you, if we make an exception for you, we've got to do that with all the divisions. And then a very small amount, which you point out, a small amount in your case, becomes a much bigger amount. Do you understand that? You know, it needs to apply to everybody. Certainly. And and the minister has said that he's met with some school divisions. And, and I recognize the difficulty with meeting with all school divisions. But the Winnipeg School Division represents 20% of education in this province. We're the largest school division. And we've come to the table with requests to to show that we're interested in, in finding cost savings in education. We have ideas for the minister uh, to hear, and this minister is completely unwilling, which is odd given his predecessor, uh, Mr. Wishart, had no problems meeting with the Winnipeg School Division. We had a very cordial relationship where we could express these ideas. The minister continues to ignore us, and the only way the minister uh, responds is through the media, through Twitter, uh, full of misinformation and, and, uh, frankly, outrageous claims about the Winnipeg School Division. You're at 2.9%. That's what you're looking at. The minister says it's got to be two, and if it's any more than two, then your administration will face cuts. Are you looking at possibly going ahead with the 2.9 and dealing with the cuts to administration, or is that even an option? Uh, you know, I, I don't think it would even be an option, but uh, at this point we haven't finalized our budget. We're, we're reviewing these last-minute changes that the minister has sent over. He, he emailed over his demands on Friday, uh, indicating a letter would be forthcoming uh, on Monday. We've yet to receive the minister's letter, so... Uh, I don't know if his office is uh, just too busy to to do the work that they need to do, but uh, the minister seems to be extraordinarily focused on administration costs at, at the Winnipeg School Division, yet the Winnipeg School Division has the lowest administration costs of any level of government or crown corporation in this province. The minister has come from the healthcare portfolio where the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority has an administration cost well over 4%. So if this minister is truly worried about administration costs in the province, I suggest he look elsewhere. And one of the very first places I suggest the minister look is at public or sorry, at private schools in this province that receive public funding with uh, the vast majority of them having administration costs 14% or higher. So if they're very much interested in the administration costs as they suggest, I would be able to point them in a few directions where they can find savings. And Chris, before I let you go, uh, a comment on the impact of students. One of your trustees was on our air this morning saying that everybody seems to be forgetting about the impact 
to students. Talk about that for a bit. Well, at the Winnipeg School Division, we're uh, very much focused on uh, delivering services and, and education that uh, improve student outcomes. Uh, we want to see our students be successful. And so whether it's, um, you know, uh, having police officers in schools, having school resource officers or, or attendance officers that help our students feel safe and, and continuing to come to school, it's programs like this that are at risk when this government wants to cut uh, administration costs. So, you know, they they talk about um, improving outcomes. They talk about student success. But if we do not have the staff available to deliver the programs that are needed, then we're never going to be able to see improved student success. And at the end of the day, this minister seems to be grossly obsessed with the, the salaries of of our female chief superintendent uh, where her pay is on par with other uh, non-politician CEOs across uh, uh, school divisions and crown corporations in this province. Uh, So I, I don't know why this minister is so obsessed with administration costs when they're clearly not the problem. Thank you for your time, Chris. Thank you. That is uh, Chris Broughton, Chair, Board of Trustees, Winnipeg School Division. Chris wrote an open letter to the Premier this morning. Uh, They are at 2.9%. The province says get it down to 2%. We'll see what happens, and we'll see if there's any reaction from the Premier to Chris's letter. Hal Anderson Afternoons, the podcast, is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere you find your favorite podcasts.